This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash. Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. Lift tickets. Once proudly zip-tied. Onto ski jackets everywhere. Now I've gone the way of the cassette. Why? Because of Epic Day Pass. It gives you the flexibility to build your own pass, all while paying up to 65% less compared to lift tickets. Just choose one to seven days to ski or ride throughout the season. Then select your resort access. Vail, Breckenridge, Park City, and so many more. It's that easy. Yep, lift tickets had a good run. But so did fax machines. It's time for Epic Day Pass.
Alright, welcome back to the Heavy Metal Mayhem Radio Show. It is Sunday, September 4th, 2022. Three quarters of the way through the year, and it was a great year for heavy metal. I mean, the last nine or ten years, I mean, it's just been amazing. All the classic bands from back in the day have been putting out amazing records. At least most of them have, you know. There have been a few clunkers here and there, but not too many. And 2022 was another one, and 2023 is shaping up to be another great one. We should have new Overkill, new Exciter. Siren is working on a new record. We're going to play some classic Siren right after this. Jack Panza have their new record ready to go. I don't think it's going to happen this year. It'll probably be the beginning of next year. But a ton of classic bands put out their brand new records in 2023. It's going to be tough to choose from. And I'm really looking forward to Jack Panza. We opened up tonight's show with some classic Panza, License to Kill. The new album is going to come in a comic book, so I'm really excited about that. I mean, you know, bands always have to look at new ways of selling albums. I mean, people like myself will always buy them because I come from that generation. And I love it that, you know, you know, people have been putting out vinyl records pretty steadily for the last 10 years. I know it's been hard to get them out right now because it's like just, it's hard to get anything out there. <laughs> you know, people aren't working anymore. There's shortages and back orders. But I know the Jack Pans will come out on vinyl and I'll buy it on there because to me, vinyl has a much more superior sound than CDs or MP3s. I mean, you know, I have everything on, on digital because... Of the radio show, we do everything digitally. We don't play records. We're not, it's not an old, uh, you know, <laughs> a radio station where we have uh, two turntables that was choosing between. So, you know, I have to get a lot of digital stuff. But personally, when I listen to my own music, I prefer to throw them on a vinyl record, sit back, relax, and enjoy that deep, rich sound. All right, we got a great show for everybody tonight. One of my favorite singers, Jim Crean, is on here tonight. He's got a brand new brand called Scream Taker. We'll be talking to him all about that. You know, we already spoke to Jim the other day. The interview was pre-recorded. We'll get that on in a little while. We have Guy Man Dude calling in live in about 15 minutes. We'll be talking to him. Heaven and Hell just released his second record. So we'll get into the, you know him about that and everything else going on in his life musically between now and then. Uh, uh, we're going to do a little Simon right now. Then we'll jump back into more music. We're going to get to an interview pretty quickly with Guy because uh, the interview with Jim was pretty long and I want to get it on before the end of the show because it is the Labor Day weekend here and I know people have things to do. And I appreciate you taking out the time to hang out with us tonight if you are listening live. I know most people get the replays after the live show is over. But let's do a little Simon right now. Can't wait for the new record to come out. It's going to be killer, I'm sure. Watch us fly. So there's no way 
Dangerous. Take three.
That's off his second record in 91, Manic Distortion, and Heaven and Hell Records re-released it last year. We're going to get a guy on the phone right now get that interview going. So give me one second, and we will dial him up. We've been batting, we've been batting 100 trying to get everybody online in one shot. Hopefully it will continue this week. <laughs> Let's see how this goes. Hey, Guy, how are you? You're on the air live. How you doing? Uh, let me turn up my phone here. You got it. You're kind of soft to me. Uh, okay, could you talk again? Yeah, can you hear me now? Yeah, good, good, good. Let me see, I'm, making a little... doing? I'm doing great, man. It's a pleasure to have you on here today. Uh, I have to tell you, I'm so happy that Heaven and Hell got a hold of that record and put it out again because... I think that record never really got what it deserved back when it came out, and, you know, 25, 30 years later, I mean, you know, people are finally hearing it who haven't heard it back then. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I think it's a classic album. Uh, back when I did it, I thought it came out great, great tunes, and and really good performance, and sounded great, and I, I put that uh, record out myself, and... Uh, I got it to a lot of colleges across the country, but it, it's hard to distribute a record yourself when you're up against the big record companies. Sure, uh, especially back then. I mean, today it, it feels like it's commonplace for bands to put out their own stuff and release it. It's like that's just the way it is now. But you're talking, you know, in the, in the late '80s, early '80s, even into the '90s, that was a really hard thing to do. Yeah, it was. So, you know, the, the first record comes out, I remember getting Sleight of Hand, and it was an instrumental record. And, you know, being young back then, I just couldn't get into the instrumental records. I knew how talented you were. You could hear it in your guitar playing, especially being such a big Randy Rhodes fan from, you know, going back to Ozzy in the early 80s. Uh, but it took me till maybe 10 years later when I really started to appreciate instrumental records. And it, it, was that a hard sell, putting an instrumental for your debut record? And on top of that, you're a kid and you're on MCA Records. Yeah, well, uh, it wasn't really a hard sell because uh, back at that time, that was starting to become pretty big with Joe Satriani and, uh, you know, Ingve and the whole guitar shred uh, scene that was going on. And I think the MCA wanted to uh, try to capture something like that. And uh, I had the manager of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, was my manager. And uh, he knew somebody, uh, one of the A&R guys was going to MCA, so it kind of all came together. And, uh, you know, I sent him a demo tape and a, 
in a in a video and it came together and uh and got signed that that's amazing so, so you think about it, i mean you know we all know you as a guitar player but originally you were a drummer or, or did you play guitar early before the drums but really mastered the drums first which how did it go about what you as far as being you know your initial thing as a musician well, I started playing guitar when I was seven years old, and uh, about when I was 12 years old, took up the drums, uh, you know, listening to, like, uh, uh, the drummer from Chicago, the yeah. group Chicago, and, uh, you know, Danny Serafin, and, you know, then listening to Billy Cobham after that, so I kind of went straight ahead and uh, straightforward with the drums. And uh, I was a professional drummer for like 10 years. And uh, towards the end, I was getting bored with it. And I just had other ideas about what I wanted to do. So I got back into uh, guitar and I, I was practicing like six to 12 hours a day for like going on like three years. And uh, you know, I just loved, uh, you know heavy metal music and you know some of my favorite guitar players and uh, that's what got me back into it and and I kind of went full force into kind of a heavy metal realm did you did you bother with the guitar at all, all over those 10 years that you were really focusing on drums did you pick it up here and there or was it just kind of secondary to you know to you being a professional uh, drummer at the time uh, I would maybe pick it up a little here and there and uh, see, what happened was I was, I had a fusion band and I actually had Steve Vai playing in my band. He played a few gigs and uh, just watching Steve at practice and hearing what he was doing, uh, I thought, I, I had thoughts of, you know, this is what I really want to do. So I started taking lessons with Steve Vai and Steve told me, he said, I could tell you're going to be uh you know, sort of a shredder because I was able uh, to play some things pretty quick and pick up on things quick. So I studied with him for about six months, and uh, it was it was kind of around at that time where I, I really got into it. Yeah, you know, being that you play multiple instruments and and pretty good, I have to say. On top of that, I mean, is music something that came to you relatively easy, where you pick something up and you were able to figure it out right away, and at least get to hang, not not so much master it, but at least be able to do it and get the hang of it? Or do you really have to work hard to learn how to play the drums, to learn how to play the guitar? And I'm not talking about just the basics, not like what you became later on as you became more experienced. Well, you know, I had some, you know, some definitely some talent on my side but when I was a drummer uh, I worked really hard at it a uh, lot of lot of practicing you know studied with some teachers you know watching a lot of great drummers and the same thing on on guitar uh, I mean I put a lot of hard work into it no question I mean many 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 hours I, I had this particular job where I was able to bring my guitar uh, to the job, and and uh, that's why I was I was able to get away with practicing many hours a day. But I think it depends on also too, you know, what you're exposed to. You know, uh, I mean, Jimi Hendrix was one of my first concerts, you know, and I, I was way way into his albums, you know, his first album and Electric Ladyland way back then, and I loved Jeff Beck. 
And so I did a lot of listening to Jeff Beck. And one of my other guitar heroes, I would say, is uh, Ollie Hassel from the group Pato. Yeah. Ollie was a great kind of jazz rock guitarist. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, way back then, it's like I wanted to play like them. And uh, so, but to answer your question, uh, you know, it's definitely a, a lot of work for sure. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, in the beginning years as a drummer, was John Anderson the highlight of your drumming career as far as going out in the road and playing with somebody? Was there somebody else that really, you know, made a spark for you? Well, I would, that, that was probably the best uh, gig I had. I mean, I played with some name players. I played with Larry Carlton for about six months. Uh, that was that was a lot of recording and playing over at his house, his home studio. Uh, yeah, I did a lot of jingles and stuff like that. But as far as a name player, playing with John Anderson, that was a great tour. Uh, the music was really challenging, but, uh, but I killed it. <laughs> I'm, I'm and, sure you uh, did. So, uh, but, you know, I, I mean, I could honestly say, you know, I, I was a good drummer and, uh, you know, I had some guys I used to listen to, you know, Vinny Caliuta on drums. I used to see him play all the time. Uh, I used to see Carlos Vega was a great drummer. Um, uh, you know, I double drummed with him uh, in Steve Picaro's band back in high school. So, in other words, I was exposed to, uh, you know, a lot of great music and great players. Yeah. I mean, when you did pick up the guitar again and you decided, this is, you know, I want to stick with the guitar and, you know, I want to get into metal again. I want to start playing that. I mean, was it Michelangelo that was your first, you know, shot at going at it and doing it? Or did you have something else going on before the solo records came out? Uh... I would say that was that was uh, definitely got me into uh, the heavy metal scene when I hooked up with uh, Michelangelo. Before that, I was doing like some demos at home, and uh, I was really digging like ACDC back then. You, you know who got me into ACDC was Kevin DeBro from Quiet Riot. Uh, I have quite a history with Kevin. And uh, he got me into them. I started listening to him. And when I saw ACDC at the Forum uh, way back in the early 80s, that kind of did it for me, you know. And so by, oh, let's see, I guess it was like 85, uh, this guy who uh, I was actually starting a band with, uh, he, he's the one who brought Michelangelo out to the West Coast introduced him to me and then I started playing with Michael and then that got me into the local scene so I was with Mike for over a year and uh, but you know I had uh, other things that I wanted to do and and uh, the music we were playing was not quite what I wanted to do so uh, then I broke out on my own yeah, I mean, Michelangelo, an accomplished guitar player in his own right, I mean, yourself, I mean, how does that work out with two guys that are, you know, masterful at their instrument playing in the same band together? Is there friction? Is there headbutting? Is there comp- is it very competitive? Or is it just an admiration for each other and the way you both play that it worked out? Yeah, I kind of knew my role. You know, he he wanted the two guitar sounds, 
and uh, and you know, with with the way Mike plays, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to try to outplay him. You know, he's a real fast player, and and so you know, I had my spots where I could do my thing, and and I just kind of played the way I played, and uh, we got a, along well musically. It didn't clash or anything, and uh, he just was kind of in his. I don't know what to, you know, his kind of speed uh, arpeggio mode, and uh, I wasn't into that. I came from the the Jeff Beck, Jimi Hendrix uh, way of playing guitar, and and but uh, no, we, I'd say musically we got along fine. I mean, it got to a point where, you know, he wanted to just one guitar in the band, and and that that was fine because I was heading in, into my direction. Yeah, I get that. Michael's uh, going to be going out with Manowar these days. He's the touring guitar player for Manowar right now. Yeah, I just saw that. Yeah. Some uh, heavy news. Yeah, I caught that yesterday myself. You know, listen, being a shredder is one thing, but being a, a songwriter, a composer, and putting together songs that are catchy, have you know good lyrics to them, have a riff, a, a chorus, that's another thing. I mean, do you know where to draw the line? Because when you have the ability that you do, you can go off in any direction, you know, guitar-wise, and turning into anything, but do you also realize that you have to have a song with a structure to it to get people into it? I mean, is there a line you draw between how far you go in every song that you write? Yeah, well... What you're saying is, you know, that was my forte was melody and and structure of songs and and the arrangement. You know, uh, a lot of the guitar players of today, these young kids, to me, it all sounds like exercises. It's so boring to me. You know, these guys who are so-called shredders. You know, I. I really never considered myself a so-called shredder. I just happened to be, uh, you know, I was I, I was a melodic guitarist who happened to be able to shred or play fast. But I never, uh, you know, the the Inge thing or you know Vinnie Moore, uh, uh, Paul Gilbert, you know, all great players. But I never really listen to them that much I just kind of honed in on my own thing and believe it or not like on my first album even though it really kicks ass and I'm really playing I'm playing some full shred stuff on there but I'm really coming from the Jeff Beck blues thing I kind of approach the shredding uh, kind of bluesy so when you to me when you think of it that way and kind of go from that angle it comes out, I think, with more substance. Where I mean, to me, I see a lot of guys, you know, on YouTube or whatever, or, or on, they'll come across on Facebook. They're just playing these exercises. I, I, I'm going like, wow, man. I'm thinking to myself, don't you ever listen to Jeff Beck or you know, go back and listen to Jimi Hendrix? I mean, all along the Watchtower, one of the greatest. Uh, guitar solos up all the time and it's totally melodic you know uh, so that's where I was coming from I, I never really thought of uh, of myself as a shredder really yeah well you know now, coming Michael, from Michelangelo no, Michelangelo I'm sorry he was a shredder you know yeah absolutely 
No, so you're coming from our generation, you know, we look back at Jeff Beck and people like that as like the people that, you know, did the stuff that we should take influence from and draw from. These kids today, we're lucky if they go back maybe with a guitar player that was out five years ago as their influence. They don't go back into the history of, of music and, you know, it goes back to rhythm and blues and jazz and everything down the road. They don't go that far back anymore. They're very limited. Like, they don't have, I don't know if it's the thought process or the capabilities to click a button on the internet to find something a little older than that, but they just don't draw from that anymore. They, to them, it's 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 old people's music. And I hate to say that because I'm that age group, but that's how they look at it. Yeah, well, that's right. That's that's what they're exposed to. And then if they don't, for not going back, it, it, the whole thing kind of gets watered down. Yeah. Uh, it really stems from the blues. If you could play the blues, then you're going to have substance in your playing. And I think most all these young guys they just don't understand that. I mean, it might sound lame to them or something, but the blues. Let's go back to B.B. King. I mean, yeah. Jimi Hendrix. I mean, he had so much blues in his playing, and that, that's uh, what I don't hear in, True. in the new generation. As a guitar player, I mean, who do you feel was the one guitar player that actually defined the sound of a guitar? Who? I don't know, that's kind of hard to say. There's just so many great players. And as far as defining the sound, you know, because, you know, I was listening to, say, Hendrix, and I was listening to John McLaughlin, too, you know, two different styles, yeah. two different schools. So that's uh, kind of hard to answer. Uh, you know, growing up, uh, one of my friends, Chris Pinnock, he's a great blues guitarist who could play real fast too he really influenced me uh but as far as known guitar players uh it's hard for me to answer but uh, i will tell you ollie hassel was a big big influence on me i i love that he uh could play jazzy but in in a rock vein too so uh but i mean maybe you want me to say les paul or somebody like that uh I want you to just no, say who you I, think, you know, make, like, who, like, what sound did you hear coming from a guitar play? They said, this is it. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to create. This is what I want to take and, you know, bring it to the next level, make it my own. Because everybody's influenced by somebody and they take it to the next level. Then another band comes around and takes their thing and brings it to the next level. It's all kind of stems back to one original person, you know. So, but for everybody, it's, it's everybody different. Everybody has their own. Yeah, I, I would say the, the three guys I mentioned Hendrix, Beck, and Ollie Hassel, and then, uh, then what I did when I really got into my thing, you know, I purposely didn't listen to a lot of guys. Paul Gilbert, even though you know I thought they were really great and stuff like that, I wanted to sound like myself, and I wanted to take uh, what I heard from Hendrix and those guys uh, into my own thing. And and so, some of the tunes on my albums, I I think I did uh, a good job of it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, when Slider Hand came out in 89, you know, the hard rock and metal world was still thriving. It was still big. You know, and even when even when Manic Distortion came out in 91, it was still, you know, still happening. It wasn't much later after that that the entire scene crashed and burned. I mean, it just, grunge came out, and that just kind of wiped away everything, you know, for, for many, many That's decades. Right. 
uh, you know, right. was it a matter of being in the right place at the right time? Because you can only be somewhere when you're there, because that's just the timeline of life, you know, when you get there. But I think these albums would have had so much more of a bigger impact. There might have been a lot more if they were a few years earlier, when you had a little chance to grow in the scene. It came out, I think, so late that, not, I can't say late, that was the timeline of it, but when the scene changed, and I think they got so lost in the mix that it was a shame, because they were such great records, and such different records. I mean, you can't even compare Slide of Hand to Manic Distortion. They are, to me, two completely different records. And not just because one's instrumental, one's focused on vocals. Sound-wise, they are two completely different albums. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. And that was a, just a sign of of me being an artist or just growing. As an artist, you grow. Uh, uh, I did a, a, another album after that uh, with a guy over in the Czech Republic, and, Milos. Uh, and Milos, and that, and that record was much different from Manic Distortion. So, as an artist, you're always growing. You, you know, you're changing, and there's nothing you could do about that. But as far as what you were getting at, you know, you know, with the grunge scene coming in, I mean, unfortunately, that's been the nature of the music business. And uh, look, in the early '90s, when I heard "Womp," there it is go number one I thought well this is the, this is the beginning of the end so it, it's it's a it's a the music business is disappointing you know and uh, when, look when I got signed I, I it was all the right elements going on at the right time right management right people you know uh, I'm not saying it was necessarily the, the right record company but it was a major label and it got me some exposure. But, you know, they had their problems. Uh, uh, MCA, when my first, when that album came out, my first one, Slide of Hand, people all over the country couldn't find it in the stores. MCA didn't get it in the stores. The distribution was, was not good. So uh, that was a big problem back then. Was there an offer for a second record with them, or was it one album deal back then? Uh, I was getting ready to do uh, another album and uh, and a video and it was going to be a vocal tune I was I was going to do Faces in the Dark for a video but uh, MCA like dropped <laughs> all of a sudden they just dropped their whole metal department I, I just don't think they could keep up with it and that was kind of the end of that yeah. so I went on to put out the next album myself yeah you know, so many people want to get signed to a major label, and then when they get there, they seem to always, most of them for the most part, seem to be disappointed. Like I said, either because there's no distribution, there might not be tour support, they want them to change their sound, their style, and everything about things that they signed them for to become whatever just happened to be popular at the time after they signed that band. I mean, so, you know, as excited as you might have been to get signed with MCA, when did you realize down the road, you know, this probably isn't what I thought it was going to be? Well, uh, one thing about being with MCA and the A&R guy I had, I had total free reign to do whatever I want. What you hear on those records, I had I had no record companies guys saying, well, maybe you should do this or that. So that was a beautiful thing, uh, you know, just uh, because the type of music I was playing was, if you want to call it new or whatever was happening, no one knew what to say about it, you know, so they, uh, I just went in and did it. I mean, they even set me up with a co-producer on the first album, but he didn't do anything to produce that album. That, that, that was all me. 
So that was a good thing about it. It was just unfortunate that uh, it just their metal department didn't keep growing. They dropped other bands too, and it was just became a mess. Yeah, they might have saw the writing on the wall, maybe with the whole metal scene back then. As so it's bail out now, who the hell knows what they were thinking at that time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know if it was between the two records or after the second one, you know, Dudes of Wrath. I mean, I got to ask you about this because you're talking about something with Tommy Lee, Paul Stanley, I think Desmond Child was a part of that. Well, yeah. Okay. How Dudes of Wrath, how that got going was when I was doing my first album, Alice Cooper was finishing up his trash album but he needed some guitar work for that album. And uh, we he was in the studio, a few studios over from me, and it wasn't uh, until like a week later, uh, just one morning, he popped right in my studio. I turned around, and Alice Cooper is right in front of my face. Wow. And we just kind of shot the shit for a little bit and didn't even talk about music or anything. And it was uh, probably in another five days later, uh, Desmond Child, who was producing, uh, Desmond and Alice brought me into uh, their studio and they wanted me, they said they needed some guitar work. They wanted me to listen some tr- to some tracks. So, uh, and that's, so I'm sitting there, I'm listening to what they have to offer. And uh, when they were done, I stood up and I told them, I said, look, this stuff sounds like John Cougar to me. You need some heavy stars in there. And uh, so I didn't know if I was going to be thrown out or what, but <laughs> Alex stood up he said, and he said, Guy is right. This needs to be more heavy metal. And uh, so from there, I worked like a full three days, uh, day and night, redoing uh, rhythms and some solos and uh so I got along with Desmond Child pretty good, and he used me on uh, another uh, record project he was doing in New York at Bearsville Studio. So I flew with him, and it coincided with Alice was flying there with his wife to do a little more work on the Trash album. Anyway, after that was all finished up back east there, Desmond Child was offered... The, to do the soundtrack for the movie Shocker and uh, he asked me to co-write some songs with him and I and at the time I thought oh man this is great to co-write with the great Desmond Child so anyway we, we co-wrote a couple tunes together and he wanted to do a video of one of these tunes and I'm the one who told him I said look he, he said he wanted to put a star band together now, at the time, uh, with the videos, what were going on at, on MTV at the time, I told him, if you want to put a star band together, get Tommy Lee on drums and get Rudy Zarzo on bass. And uh, I'll be damned if the next very day at the record plant, there was Tommy Lee, Rudy Zarzo, and I, I think they got Vivian Campbell from those Whitesnake videos, you know, seeing them. Yeah. I think Desmond liked him. So there we all are. We were all thrown together, and eventually, after a little bit, Desmond, uh, it was kind of a playoff on my name, calling the band the Dudes of Wrath. 
and uh, you know Paul Stanley sang on one of the tunes, and uh, it was great to play with with Tommy Lee. It was a ball, but that's kind of how that came together. And and uh, Alice actually did a talking rap on one of the songs, and me and Kane Roberts wrote lyrics for that song. And but that's how that came together. The dudes of rap. That's amazing. I mean, at that time, were you hoping that maybe something could have came out of that that would have been more of a maybe like a project or a tour band? Did you kind of know this was it? We were just going to do this one-off thing for the movie soundtrack, and that was going to be the end of it. Well, the the thing that was uh, that could have been really great. They were talking. They were going to do a video with Paul Stanley in the video singing, and Desmond sang part of the song, and and. Uh, and got got Paul Stanley, but the Kiss people put a stop on that because they were releasing some Kiss album or uh, something to do with Kiss. So they wouldn't let uh, they wouldn't let us do the video. So that was a real heartbreak because that could have been big promotion and uh, sold a lot records. Uh, but uh, that was all that was planned with that particular band. I mean, can you imagine Tommy on drums and Paul Stanley? Uh, but uh, that got squashed. So it's just just another thing about the music business that <laughs> didn't go right. That is amazing. You know, I mean, I think for me, just being able to work with Desmond Child, especially in the studio, for people that, I mean, I don't know who would have known, but I mean, Desmond Child's written for Bonnie Tyler, Aerosmith, like I said, Alice Cooper, Michael Bolton, Billy Squire, Bon Jovi, Bonfire, you name it. I mean, the guy's written some of the biggest songs in the world. When you're sitting down with him, I mean, do you watch, do you listen, do you learn, do you try to pick up on like, what he does to create a song? Because you're a great songwriter yourself, and you have your own style, but do you try to like watch what he's doing to draw from him and see how he comes up with it, how he does it? Uh, definitely, and when I was working in the studio uh, with him, uh, I realized pretty quickly that Desmond Child uh, was a real genius and a great producer. I definitely picked up on some uh, techniques of his, which, uh, you know, the next year I went to the Czech Republic and I, I produced some records there. And I uh, was definitely using some Desmond Child techniques, no question. He, he, he's a brilliant guy, just re- really, really talented uh, in every way. So that was, that was a great opportunity work, to work with him. I can imagine. After even the Czech Republic, I mean, you work with Milos on his records. That's the last I really heard of you until Heaven and Hell decided to get a hold of you and re-release this album. I mean, was there anything musically you did over those years that was put out that we don't know about? Uh, not, not really. I just, uh, not, not really. I think, you know, I, I did a lot of recording over in the Czech Republic and, uh, stuff that was released there. And it was for that country because it was in the Czech language. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a whole lot longer out of that where I started, getting into other things i wanted to do some movie score work and i was getting into more of that realm and i i scored some cartoons and and i did some shorts uh some uh, movie shorts and i really tried to break into that but man that was really hard and i found out fairly quickly how closed up that area the movie scorers are but i just kind of kept growing in it and 
uh, you know, there definitely came a time there in the 90s where, where I just was growing out of what I used to do before. Yeah. Well, you know, with and the also re- too around that around that time, I started studying piano. Oh wow! So I was, yeah, I was taking piano lessons uh, from a great jazz uh, teacher in L.A. and and that was, you know, so I was getting off into that. You know, that's like I said earlier, artists tend to grow; they get into other things. You know, I mean, hell, look, the manic this, this manic distortion album that was released. Uh, I'm not going to outdo that. And I knew back then for the next record, I'm not going to outdo that. So uh, that's why I say the third album, which I did in the Czech Republic, kind of went in a different direction. And I know it would have continued to go in different directions. Just like you know, Jimi Hendrix. I mean, I'm not comparing myself to him, but I know as an artist, he would have grown. He probably would have got into the fusion thing that John McLaughlin was doing and and Jeff Beck got into fusion thing. I mean, you just tend to grow, you know. Do you think that that's a problem maybe with a lot of bands that they do repeat themselves album? I mean, like you have to take a band like Iron Maiden. You know, every record sounds like Iron Maiden. They sound the same. They know what the fans like and what they want, and they put out the same thing. You know, but as a musician, as the person writing the music, wouldn't you? Wouldn't it be disappointing to yourself if you just said, you know, what well, I'm going to just write more of the same because that's what people want? Isn't that not being true to yourself and what you want to do? I mean, these guys have the ability and the money. They like do different projects where they can express themselves differently, but. You know, as a solo artist, which you technically were, I mean, I know you had your three-piece band with Barry and, and David, but it was basically you. So, I mean, do you is that the way you would have went, you think? Like you said, every album would have been something different because that's how you would have grown over the years, and it might not even have been metal maybe yeah, 10, yeah. 15 years down the road. Yeah, definitely. There, there's no way I could have kept putting out albums like, say, the first two that I did. I mean, you just... I, I mean, to... I, let's, let's take Metallica. I mean, you know, some bands, some guys are have talent, and other guys don't really have the talent to grow. I mean, uh, after let's say Metallica's and Justice for All album, to me it was like, are you got to be kidding? You know, the stuff that they were coming out with, and how could they possibly just, you know, keep churning out, uh, you know, the same same type of stuff just hardly even done in a different way that's just not it's never been me i've just always gotten into new things i mean my god to go from heavy metal and then to movie scoring uh yeah there's there's no way i could have have done that and you know who knows if that's good or bad look my stuff i never got as big as metallica you know they're the kings of, of what they do uh and hey more power to them but uh there, it's that's just something you cannot guide. You, you've got to go where musically in your mind where you're going, and, and that's it. That, that, that's true. That's why I love when I guess somebody says, you know, I was a Metallica fan, but I hate that band today because they're not the same Metallica from '86. I'm like, well, you're not a fan of them, but they gained fourteen thousand other ones <laughs> last record, so they're not really missing the one or two of us. They don't care no more. But that's just you know, like you said, the music business is a crazy business, and. You know, guy, I'm going to have to let you go in a few minutes because I have another guest interview i got to get on, and I want to play some music. Okay. But, I mean, you know, with this record coming out again and a whole new younger audience coming into your style of guitar playing and hearing this for the first time, and hopefully this will lead them, you know, back to the sleight of hand. Have you ever thought about maybe going out and doing a one-off show here and there, you know, with these songs? 
because I know you've moved on. It's not really uh-huh. a thing right now, but it would be great to hear you live performing. You know, I know, I know David passed away, I think maybe seven or eight years ago, but you think that might be a possibility down the road? No. No. no it's, you know, with David being gone and, uh, yeah, there's, there's just, I mean, he, he was a big part of my band and, and, uh, helping me do what I was doing. And, I mean, I'm off into other things. I mean, uh, you know, I I don't really touch the guitar anymore. I'm on the piano. You know, when I get a chance, I, I uh, get to my piano. And uh, but uh, you know, I'm really uh, thankful to Jeremy from Heaven and Hell Records, and you know, he called me out of the blue, and uh, was able to get this reissue going. So I'm grateful for that. And uh, I think it's an album that should be heard. It, 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 there's no question. It's a great album. Absolutely true. You know what it is? Legends never die. This music lives on forever. People 20 years from now are going to hear it, 40 years from now, and 60 years from now. And you're always going to be the same guy, man, do it to them because, you know, you never get old and you never die in reruns. That's right. Hi right, guy, listen, and it was a pleasure talking with you today. I'm going to get on some more songs off that record. I'm going to go back to the first one probably later on. But it was really nice having you on here today, man. The best of luck with your piano, and hopefully you'll put some piano music out on record. We'll get to hear that. Well, I really appreciate it, and it was great talking to you. You're a great interviewer, Mike. I appreciate it. Thank you, guy. Have a great weekend. What's left of it? And enjoy your Labor Day. Okay. All right. Take, Take care. care, my friend. Bye bye. All right, you know what? We just played, uh, what did we, we played Hand in Hand the Race, so how about we do Against the Grain? Go with the flow. 
Guy Man Dude Against the Grain that comes off the 91 Rikimatic Distortion re-released last year by Heaven Hell. Head over to that page, give it a like. Well, you can't like anything on Facebook anymore. They made everything uh, followers now. I went on the other day, I was like, what happened to people used to like my page, to show to my page? And they changed everything around Facebook. Thank God I don't really count. I, you know, I post on there like I do all the social media sites, but I use my own .com to promote my show and, you know, and the Spreaker website over here because I just don't like using social media that much anymore. All right, uh, well, like I said, go to the Heaven and Hell website, buy the records, support Jeremy's label. He releases a lot of great records. This is just one of them. There were more things I wanted to actually talk to Guy about. I wanted to ask him about Steve Lukather, but I just forgot, you know, because I got to get this next interview on. I want to wrap things up here tonight because I'm heading to Atlantic City, and I, and I want to get this trip going for the weekend. My last weekend away before the end of the year and before I retire, so there you go. All right, well, like I said, it is September, and you know what that means? It's the 14th anniversary of the Heavy Metal Mayhem radio show. We kicked it off tonight with Guy Man Dude. We have Jim Crean coming on in a few minutes. Next week, Mantis from Venom Inc. and Venom. Jeff Dunn will be on the show. Who else we have on next week? Matt Peppy from Royal Hell. The week after that, John Gallagher from Raven. Rob Thorne from Sacred Oath. We're bringing out all the big guns for this month. All of our friends are calling in and coming back. We're going to celebrate. Uh, two weeks, we'll have the anniversary show. It'll be no different than this one, just with different guests on and different songs. But stick around. All right. You know, the other day I was saying to myself, we need another witch find. Having one witch find is not enough, so we should really have two. So Tracy Abbott, who's playing in Overdrive, is now playing in another version. He, actually, he was in witch find, I think, for the last few years or so. Uh, so I'm not even sure, to be honest with you. But, uh... Andrew Colton, who was in the original Witch Find for the first record and the demos before that, has his version of Witch Find going right now, which is, I think, the 40th anniversary of Give Him Hell Witch Find. I don't even fucking know anymore. It's become so ridiculous. So, uh, you know, so he says, I'm leaving and I'm going to play over there. And uh, it's just crazy shit having so many bands. You have Kevin Riddle's Baphomet, who's out there doing. Uh, the early Angel Witch music. They said they got Kevin's blessing to do it. Maybe they did. I don't know why he would bless another band going out there performing the early Angel Witch songs, which technically he's still performing live. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, the last two Angel Witch records that came out over the last 15 years really didn't do nothing for me. And the two that came out in the mid-80s, 85 and 86, they weren't bad records, but it was that first one that's a classic. But if you want to hear stuff off of that, go see the old bass player, Kevin Riddles, who's also, you know, from Titan, another great band. He's out there doing the old Angel Witch. Now you're going to have this version of uh, Witchfire with Andrew on guitar, who played on the first album. And uh, you'll have uh, Tracy Abbott, who's been the guitar player for him for a while now. And he's also an overdrive doing, I don't know, it's just such crazy shit. I don't even know what to say anymore. Too many versions of one band. And it seems like it's always the bass players or the drummers that are forming these second versions of the bands. I don't know what it is with bass players and drummers. Go figure. All right, how about we do a little Amin Ra, Cloak and Dagger. <laughs> Thank you. 
God is satisfied, then crucified. We're going to get into it with Jim Crean in two minutes. I'm going to play something off Scream Take, his brand new band with Vinny Apice. He's worked with Vinny and his brother Carmine for years. We'll talk to him all about that. I just saw my Facebook uh, memory feed. We had Jim on the show five years ago today, so go figure that. We'll have to make it a little quicker than every five years, Jim, but that was what it was five years ago. All right. Off the brand new Scream Take record, we're going to get on a song called The Curse of the Werewolf and go right into that interview with Jim.
I saw my cell phone ringing. I'm in the studio with the headphones on. I didn't know which one to go to first. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, great, man. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And listen, I've been such a fan of your music now. I hate to say for four decades because it's been that long and it makes me feel really old, but I've been with you for a long time as a fan, man. And I have to tell you, the new record, Scream Taker, unbelievable. Awesome. Thank you, bro. Yeah, it's, it's, we're really excited about it. How did this all come about? I mean, I know you've worked with, you know, you've worked with Carmen and Vinny for years, so, you know, this one's with Vinny. I mean, how did this all come about? When did, you know, how did you decide to put this together and musically where you were going to go with it? Um, well, we did it during um, uh, the COVID thing. So I have a, I've been working with a really great guitar player out of France, uh, Stefan. He played with, um, you know, Paul Diano from Iron Maiden and, uh, you know, Chris Holmes from Wasp. So he's done a lot of plus he plays in a band called the Hollywood Monsters and Sun Road. So he's he's well established in France and Europe. And me and him and back and forth. He actually wrote songs with me on my last record. And um so we just were demoing songs out back and forth because really there's nothing else to do during COVID. And uh these songs that are coming out pretty kick ass. So um you know, then and then of course I got over to Vin, got him over to Vinny and said, "What do you think you, you want to do with some of these songs?" I mean, because it sounds real Black Sabbathy, and he fell, and Vinny fell in love with them, and said, "These songs are great." I mean, it sounds like something off of, you know, Mob Rules meets Holy Diver. Yeah. You know, so we just just started just demoing them out, and before you knew it, it became an album. You know, that's really how it started. That's great. I mean, when you sit down to write anything new or anything that, you know, one of of your solo records, maybe a new band that you're playing with, is there some preconceived notion of where you want to go with it? Or do you feel like, you know, when you just kind of wing it and let things come out the way they are, that kind of, you know, is your best work? Exactly what you just said, uh, the latter part of that. Honestly, it's, uh, we just, I don't really, when I write a song, I don't go in with any intentions of it's got a song like this or let's try this or... I want it to be like this. We just start writing, and whatever kind of flows, flows. And especially this record, it, it just flew. I mean, when I was writing the melodies and stuff, I was just singing, really. Steph would send me music riffs that he had come up with, and then I would go into my studio, because we did this all, you know, um, uh, at our own home studios. Yeah. Because it was during COVID. And um, I would just, would I would literally hit record on my studio and just, just go for it. And, and a lot of the stuff on the record is one take. It's just the first take, you know, me going, you know what, I, this is this is cool. So that's really how the album came about. And, and it sounds like a real live album kind of, it sounds like we're all in the studio together just making a record. 
it really does have that live feel to it. Like, you know, very spontaneous, like it was done on the spot, you know, right there while it was happening. I mean, you come up to this business where, you know, what the way we work today and the way we do things today with, you know, digital technology and, and be able to record from all different parts of the world, it wasn't like that in the early 80s. You had to be together as a band, you know, and go into the studio. I mean, is it easier to adapt, like, from the old way to the new way over all these years of doing it, or do you like the old way where the whole band is together in the studio and they're, they're working out the kinks on all the songs and, you know, throwing ideas back and forth right there, or, you know, is the file sharing and swapping, does that work better for you, you think? You know, that's a great question. Um, I, I like both. I, you know, the old days in the 80s and stuff, when we used to go right in the studio, we book studio time and then go hibernate in the studio for a month and just come out with a really cool record. Those days were a lot of fun. Um, but now it's just so convenient. Like if I get an idea at 2 o'clock in the morning, I can run downstairs in my home studio and just start recording. That, that's, that's a really nice convenience. Plus I can take my time with vocals, especially vocals, because, you know, when you when we, we recorded in the 80s, a lot of times, you know, you we had time, you know, you booked time. So if you weren't having a good vocal day, you know, it, that was just too bad. You had to still record, you know what I mean? Now it's, I could go down and try, and if I'm not feeling it, I can just take a break and come back to it. That's the plus side. The negative side about it is exactly that. You can take too much time on something, and before you know you have 15 takes of the same exact vocal line that sounds exactly the same, but being a perfectionist, you just keep trying it and trying it and trying it and I can do better I can do better and before you know it you listen back and you go they're all exactly the same yeah. so and you end up wasting you know four or five hours of your own time doing the same exact thing so it's got its pros and cons I mean I'm a true believer of getting together in a room and just killing it together and writing songs together I love that but it seems like that's gone to the wayside and it seems like this file sharing thing has really become the new now and I think it's here to stay yeah, no, I agree with you. So many bands that I've interviewed have been around doing this for so long. Like, no, no, I like it this way. And I think a lot of them say that because they're not in the studio butting heads with each other. <laughs> they can, like, kind of do it through emails and little messages. They're not, like, fighting nonstop and wasting a lot of precious time and money. People don't realize how expensive it is to go into a studio. So I, I get doing it this way. So, But, like, being, like, such an old-school guy, I think there's something that comes out of everybody being together also because you do have that instantaneous moment where you say, no, no, just maybe play it like that and... And sometimes you do create magic that way. I agree. So um, it's yeah. sometimes it's great to be together and the camaraderie thing happens. You know, you guys all go for a bite to eat, come back, you rejuvenate yourself, come back, and you've got some ideas. You know. Yeah. But like, or or like you said, you you fight about things. That you're adamant about. Hey, I want it done this way, and they're just not falling together like that. So I, you know, it's it's a hard. That's a great question, though. By yeah. the way. Um, but it's a hard answer to give you because I like both. And, and I really do like the fact of I can take my time and kind of do my own thing vocally and and even musically. You know, I can just take my time and do it the way I, it, it comes to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I've read quite a few reviews so far on the record. And, I mean, nobody's had anything bad to say about it. And even if they did, I think they're wrong because you really have a top-notch record here. I mean, one of the best, I think, so far of the year for me. And we're almost through the, you know, the whole year right now. Uh, and a lot of people saying supergroup. I hear supergroup, supergroup, supergroup. And I'm like, I don't know, I mean, that, I mean you got very well-known musicians in here, all played with amazing people and done great things, but sometimes I hear that, and I'm like, that's like the jinx of death sometimes, because people, I think, expect more than they should, and it's just a great record, but it puts it at a whole other level when you say supergroup. I mean, how do you feel about that moniker? Well, it's great that you said the album of the year, because it's just like the third interview I did that day, the 
you know, the interviewer, such as yourself, has said, man, this could fall in, you know, the new AOR album of the year. And that makes me feel good because I didn't even think of that when we were writing it. Like, hey, this is going to be the album of the year. I just, we just wrote it and had fun with it. So, but I'm hearing that. And that's kind of cool that I'm hearing that. And then you're saying it too. And, you know, you've been around a long time. So you, you hear, you get a lot of music sent over to you. So that's cool that you, you said that. As far as that super group title, I, I hate it. I, 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 it's the worst. That's the kiss of death. Super group. You know, what's a super group? A super group to me is a, something that's all these great musicians get thrown together they make a record and then they never talk again that to me is a super group because that's what happens with every one of those so-called super groups that come out um they just they don't last they don't tour they don't really do much of anything um so i don't like that at all i don't like super group and I, 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 one of the one of the reviews i read was the new super group featuring vinnie apathy and jim green and Stefano. and i was like man we're not a super group we're just a bunch of guys that got together and made a cool record you know yeah we've all you know been established like you said in the music business but Supergroup is strong I mean, Supergroup to me would be like Steven Tyler um, you know Tony Iommi uh, <laughs> what I mean that to me is a Supergroup these guys that you know were just crazy super I mean and how awful would that really work if they all those guys really got together and did that you know what I mean I just don't feel that there would be a great album that would come out of that Whereas me, Steph, and Vinny have worked together a lot, and I think we're, we're pretty humble guys where I think it just came out to be a really cool record. And that's so, yeah, to answer the question, Supergroup is awful. I don't like that at all. Yeah, it's true. You, you guys have worked together a while, and even with the Apathy of Peace Brothers, I got to give them both different last names, you know, but you've been with them for a very long time now. I mean, is there a comfortability factor with working with the same people over and over again? Because you also have your solo stuff, which you do, which is amazing. But, you know, when you work with other people, especially with, you know, Vinny and, and Carmine, who have been around for so long and have such a distinct reputation in the music that they've done, whether it was, you know, Carmine with Rod Stewart and, and, and Fudge and everything else that he's done, and Vinny with Dio and Sabbath, I mean, you, you know, how does it all work out together where you guys get along so well that you keep producing top-quality records, you know, and there's no ego involved ever, it seems? Vinny and Carmine are like my brothers. I mean, I love those guys. I've been with those guys for, like you said, a very long time. We do a, a really cool band called the, uh, well, depending on who we're talking to, Apathy Brothers or Peace Brothers. Yeah. Um, so we just called APPICE. But we've we've been together, oh, God, 12 years now um, in that band alone. Just And we, we play a lot of shows every year, um, you know, and we've done three, two records together already with that band. So you're right. There's no ego with those guys. They're the most grounded guys you'll ever meet in your life. And to be as famous and, 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 and well-known as they are, they, they're the most humble, cool, down-to-earth guys you'll ever meet. In your, I mean, we call each other, like, weekly and just talk about the weather. I mean, that's that's how it is. We don't, you know, sometimes we don't even talk about music at all when we call each other. And, um, and, I, and I like that approach with those guys. So it, we became like family. So it's... When I'm working with those guys, it's not like work to me. It's not like okay, I got to go play with this guy, and it's it's like I look forward to it. It's fun, and um, you know, Carmine, you know, he's 76 years old, you know, and he yeah. plays like a 20 year old, and he plays drums like a 20 year old. I mean, we just came off we just came off the road. Uh, we were we did a little run about three weeks ago, and we did a bunch of shows. And uh, man, these both of the brothers are on fire still. I mean, they're just playing like like no like nobody's business. So. It's it's a it's a great feeling playing with guys we we I get along with Steph Hahn the guy the guitar player 
I get along wonderful with. I mean, him talk all the time, and we're just like we're, we're buddies, you know. So it's 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 great playing with people you really get along with. It's true. I mean, I know COVID kept everybody down the last two years. I mean, shows are starting to happen again this year. Things are picking up, and hopefully, we'll just keep going, you know, in this direction. So, is you know, is Scream Take is something that you're looking to actually get out on the road with? Is it, is it a possibility behind that? In any anytime soon? Hundred percent. That's the right. goal. Um, you know, Vinny keeps busy with the Last of Line project that he has, which is a great band, uh, phenomenal band. You know, it's got Vivian Campbell in there from from Def Leppard, and you know, of course, he plays in Dio. He's got a fantastic band with that Carmine oh, well, Carmine keeps busy with with his um, you know his cactus and vanilla fudge still so you know those guys keep busy with that I keep busy with a, a band called Hair Nation that I, that I do a lot of playing with and um, and of course we got the Peace Brothers so in between all that stuff that we've got going on together we have a lot of time free where we plan on really booking Scream Taker and taking it to Brazil we've already got offers in Brazil um, South America um Europe and of course here in the states so we've already offers are really coming in to to really you know play a lot with this band um but you know based on scheduling and all that I plan on getting out there I'd, I'd like to do oh god I'd like to do a nice run with this band and do like a maybe two three month tour with this band and uh really get it out there because I think the record's so strong that I think people will really really fall in love with these songs especially when you hear them live Oh, absolutely. These are going to go over like a bomb when you play them live. And, you know, I mean, we're both New Yorkers. You know, I know you're upstate. I'm down here in the city and, you know, Staten Island these days. But we have mm-hmm. such a great thriving scene here in New York. Even, you know, people always bring it back to New York City with Lamore and a lot of the clubs that were in Manhattan back in the 80s. Like, you know, that's where everybody wanted to go and play. But, you know, upstate New York had an amazing scene. I had Roy Costner from the band DC Strut on about a week ago, and we were talking about everything going on up there, whether it was like, you know, up in Buffalo or down a little lower where you had bands like The Rods, you know, Carl Caddy was doing everything over there with every band that came through town. I mean, it was just an amazing scene. I mean, how is it today upstate? I mean, is there enough of a club scene? Because you're talking about Hair Nation. I mean, you've had that thing going for, what, like the last 15, 20 years now? 23, 22 years. 22, 22 years. years. Holy cow. I mean, it's got to be a pretty vibrant scene to keep you busy. I actually had Roy. Roy actually was, he played gigs with us. I mean, he's actually been in and out of the band and did shows with us, ironically enough. So I've known Roy for many years. And Carl's a dear friend of mine. I've done shows with Carl. And Carl's a fantastic human being. Yeah. And both guys are great. Roy and Carl are great guys. So, yeah. Um, we Actually, ironically enough, we just played at the Cutting Room in New York City with the Peace Brothers two weeks ago. So um, the scene from I, from back then was unbelievable in the 80s. I mean, you could play literally live every night of the week. And you could go up to from Buffalo. Well, from starting, you could start up in Toronto and go all the way up to um, New York City. Staten Island, Long Island, all that, and then move it right back. Every week, you could run like that. Yeah. And that's how I did it. And uh, it was unbelievable. Now, not so much. The scene hasn't changed a, a drastically. Um, there's not a lot of venues to play, you know, um, not a lot of... Uh, the rock scene has changed a lot, but, you know, but now with all the social media, you can get your music out there, you know, on the internet. Whereas back then, you had to just keep playing. The only way people heard your songs is by jamming them down their throat, playing live. Now you don't need to do that as much. You can get out there and play, you know, choice, select cities, along with keeping your music on the internet. So it's got its pros and cons with that as well. Personally, I love playing live. You know, that's what that's what I, that's what I do. Um, but, 
you know, I think the scene has changed a lot, you know, from from back when, like you said, back when it was thriving in the 80s. Yeah. You know, one of the first bands I was able to see when I was able to sneak out of the house as a very young preteen, uh, without getting caught by my parents, was, was Talos. I saw them open up for Quiet Riot in 1983. And you have a really good connection with them and Phil who passed away I think one of the, outside of you one of the best singers out there passed away a little over a year ago you and Phil were like you know like brothers in arms I mean you guys were like really like together on a lot of stuff back then how did that come about your relationship two singers no less Phil's my best friend I, I, I cry every day about him I think about him every day and, and my heart breaks every day I, I, not a day has gone by since well even before he passed when he, when he got sick and yeah. called me up and just told me told me the, just the horrifying news um and uh my heart just breaks every day i say I, i'm not over it let's put it that way i'm not going to get over this thing was, he, he i look for him every time i'm in the studio to be honest with you when i'm making records i look for him because even when i wasn't making records with him i'd call him and play what i did and say hey what do you think of this or what should i do here we got any ideas and that's kind of the relationship me and him had like brothers i mean and best friends so to answer your question with that, he took me under his wing when I, I was 13 years old. Or no, I'm sorry, I was like 15 years old when I when I met Phil, and we started opening up for Talos. Here he's you know he was he's from Rochester, New York, but he joined the Buffalo-based Talos, which is the super group of Buffalo, you know, all the way back from the three-piece, which was phenomenal, all the way up to the four-piece that he was in, and we we got lucky enough to have the same agency uh, booking the band I was in, and then they would put us in front of Talos. Well. A couple of times we were playing, and Phil was just kind of hanging out, watching me play on the side of the stage. And, and I'm like, "Wow, this guy's you know, great!" And he's watching me play. And then he pulled me aside and said, "Hey, you know, I see a lot in you, and um, I'd like to. We should write some songs together." And I was like, "Wow, that's that's cool," you know. And then the next thing you know, we're we're writing songs together, and to, before you know it, we're, we're recording songs together and making albums together. And that that started, like I said, in 1984. So from that time forward, me and him, we have thousands of songs written together. I mean, demoed, and I got catalogs of songs. And um, and they got a new Tales album coming out, actually. It should be out around the same time Scream Takers coming out. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, I, and I've heard it all, and it just, it's Phil's last recording. Well, he did you know, one called Lips, Lips Turn Blue, which is out now, which is phenomenal. I tell everybody to go out and get that. I'm actually on a couple songs, uh, background vocals. I did some background vocals on it. Lips Turn Blue, it's called. And um, But the new Tales album's coming out, so I'm real excited. It's kind of like the final, um, you know, tribute to Phil. Yeah. So, um, you know, but he was so proud of that record, and, and he played it for me when it all got done, and we sat and listened to it, you know, knowing that he was sick. It was, it was really hard for me to just embrace it and go, wow, it's, you know, I'm so happy for you knowing the, the end result was going to be what it was. And, um, but I tell everybody go out and get that album. It's, it's going to be, you know, if you like my style of singing, it's almost exactly like Phil's. And we, we, we really go out there and we really gave it our all every time. So, yeah. It, it, it's, it's rare when you think about it, like another musician, you know, like it says, Talos was established back then. You know, they, they were, sort of the king of the club scene back then also especially upstate and you have this singer yep. you know taking you under his wing and you usually hear about the rivalries you know like the way they don't want to you know support the other bands and there's always those like you know 
I, you know, the least thing ego, I guess people call it. And this guy takes you under his wing, and you become best friends and, and music mates, really, for most of your your career. And now you say, and I didn't realize you were 15 years old when you were in that band. You know, you were really young. You, what was the name of that band? Because for some reason, I can't remember that. That was a band called Strutter. So. Strutter. Okay, I, I remember hearing about that. Yeah, yeah, we played a lot, and um, you know, you're right. There was so much rivalry back then, especially here in Buffalo and Rochester. Bands just would slam each other, and it was it was horrible actually. And that was it got ugly that whole thing. But Phil was not that guy. Phil was the guy that said, "I'm going to help you. I'm going to we're, we're going to get you there," you know. And Phil actually got me a bunch of auditions for like a couple pretty big bands. Like there was a band called Breaker out of Cleveland that you know I was. But I was so young, I didn't want to move to, you know, Cleveland at 16, 17 years old, you know. Um, but there was a lot of stuff. There was um, Skid Row. When Skid Row wasn't Skid Row, um, it was uh, just the guys from Skid Row forming it. They wanted Phil to actually join the band. Um, but he didn't, he didn't like, really like the, that style of hard rock yet, you know. It, it's sleaze rock, I guess you would call it at that time. But um, then Coney Hatch. So there was a lot of things like that happening, and... Let's take it back to what you're saying, the Kings of the Bar scene, the three-piece talus with Dave Constantino, who's just one of the best guitar players on the planet. Um, I do a lot. Of, I did a lot of work with him as well, you know, and he's another guy who, you know, kind of took me under his wing as well, you know. So that version of talus was phenomenal too. Let's not forget that. The three-piece talus, Dave, Paul, and Billy was unbelievable. But then when I first started watching the four-piece band with Mark, uh, Mitch, and um, and Billy, and Phil, of course, that just blew me away, you know. So it we I was lucky enough to be a part of that, and, and that's that's really cool that I can say that. And like you said, me and Phil, all those years, just worked together and really became musical partners throughout the you know three four decades. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, till today, I mean, I remember seeing them on stage that first time and, and seeing Billy Sheenan up there, and I was like, what the hell's that guy playing? That can't be a bass guitar. Like it just blew my mind. Watching this guy play that, I was like, "Holy cow! What is this man doing with those four strings?" It was unbelievable. Until today, I mean, I, I, I'll always go back to that one show. It's the one that left the most lasting impression on me. And I've seen a million bands over the last four decades. Watching him play up on stage, that was just mind blown. Where was that at Lamar's when you saw him? That was at Lamar. I think it was like eighty-two, eighty-three. They opened for Quiet Riot. <laughs> Oh yeah, that would be eighty four. Yeah, eighty three. Eighty three. Okay. Yeah, I knew it was back then yeah. somewhere. And that was just an amazing night. And they were such a great band. I mean, when you talk about Strada, I mean, you know, fifteen years old, you're probably in your first like real band. Did you think you guys were gonna take over the world back then that you were gonna be the next kiss? I thought our songs were great. I mean yeah. we were 'cause we were all original, so we did like two cover songs, but all originals and of course, yeah. You think to yourself you know, we're we're just as good as any band out there, you know, because you're writing cool songs, and we we knew we were all young guys. I was the youngest, obviously, but there was all guys like 17 and 18 in the band, so we knew what was happening at that time. Like that was when all the 80s bands were start. They weren't called 80s bands, obviously, because they were current bands, but yeah. like the Motley Crue's and all that stuff. You know what I mean? That was when all those bands that scene was happening. So we were real in tune to that scene. Like we knew that those type of bands, like rap before they were really rap and all these bands, we knew that sound. So we were going for that sound. We were like, this is, we're going to be a part of this. So we are in tune to the new music. And I remember Phil, Phil was a little older than I. And Phil would, would say to me when he was writing songs for Talis, he'd be like, 
hey, is it like, do the kids want to hear this type of stuff? You know, because Phil was, you know, he, geez, he was exactly 10 years older than I was. So, you know, he was maybe 26 at the time, 27. And he was saying to me, well, I remember him writing a couple of songs that became Talis songs and him saying, well, the kids like you, you know, your guy's age, would you guys like this type of stuff? You know what I mean? So, and I thought to myself, that's cool that he's asking me for advice because, you know, we're in the now, you know? So yeah, to answer that, we, we are pretty cocky, brash little kids thinking we were going to take on the world, of course. And if you're not, if you don't think like that, then you, you, you could never take on the world, <laughs> you know? But then, but then you look back. I look back now, and I go, "God, were we just awful?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah. like you said, you know, you're full of bravado. You're 15 years old. You know, you 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 think your shit don't stink. And I, but it must be right. very tough. I would have I would have loved to have seen that live. But you know, you were talking about breaking. I remember the first record, Get Tough. I think Jim Heyman was a singer on that record out that, of uh, Cleveland. Right. And I'm listening to that record in my head now. And I'm picturing you singing. I'm like, that would have been fantastic. I know it wasn't meant to be. But just listening to those songs in my head right now, I'm like, wow, having Jim sing those songs, that would have been something else. Yeah, and it, they, like Phil sent him my demos and stuff. I have a couple of Strutter demos and stuff that were pretty cool and um, at the time. And uh, they, he said they were real interested, you know. So, But I just wasn't a thing, you know. And, and I remember Phil saying, hey, you should go. You should go. This is a good band. But then, they, you know, they were opening up for bands like Talos. So they weren't really a headlining band. They were like an opener band, like no different than what I was in. So I'm like, yeah. well, I don't want to do a lateral movement and join a band that's struggling to just struggle in another band, you know? I'd rather be in a headlining band, you know? So to me, it just didn't seem like, I think I thought at that moment, I thought I had a better shot at what I was doing, you know what I mean? Than sure. joining a band that was doing exactly what I was doing. Yeah, yeah so, absolutely. But that was just one of the bands. There was other bands that he, I can't remember all of them, but there was... There was, Phil was in pretty high demand. He was getting a lot of offers at the time to go, you know, to go join bands, and, and that was like right around the time Talos was like Billy was just joined David Lee Roth, and um, Phil was looking. He was trying to keep Talos together with Bruno and those guys. Actually, moved to the city, he moved to New York City with Bruno and Al Petrelli and all those guys, which ended up being Danger Danger. But you know, he was the initial guy, and they were calling it Talos, but they were trying to keep that alive, and and then. Bands were reaching out to Phil, like I said, Skid Row did, and Coney Hatch, and I can't remember another band, too. I forget. But they were all reaching out to him, and then Phil would, like, kind of push me to it. He'd be like, well, you know, why don't you go check this out? So there was a lot of that going on. But back then, it was such a different scene because, again, these bands, nobody was, everybody was just trying to do their thing, right? Like, Sebastian Bach was a Toronto guy, so he was playing in a band called Kid Wicked, and they were they would come up here to Buffalo and they were just a no dip a band just like what we were you know like all these bands were we were all just kind of doing our own thing you know what I mean and so but looking back in hindsight you know Sebastian Bach was a perfect fit for Skid Row he came and turned that band into what is known as Skid Row right so there was a lot of that cool stuff going here in the East Coast and and of course in the West Coast it was even crazier you know so. It was an exciting time being in, in a band in the 80s, I gotta say. It was a very exciting time. It absolutely was. I mean, you know, when you look back now, you can say, you know, going to break and not going to break, that was a good move because the band didn't go nowhere. Nothing really happened to them and they broke up not long after that. But that's now you can look back and say that. Do you remember any other opportunities that you've had over the last few decades that you passed up and then later on said, oh man, why did I pass that up? Look what it turned into. There was a really cool band in, in Europe uh, that. 
contacted me. I can't think. So like I thought about the other day. I couldn't think when they had great songs and they were really good and they were playing like Wacken Festival and they were doing all these cool gigs. And I can't think what they were called. Um, Angra, Angra or something like that. Something like that. I thought about it the other day, actually. And I thought to myself, whatever happened to that band? Because I remember when they were looking for a singer, they were their management was reaching out to my management at the time. And, uh, and then I demoed stuff back and forth for them. I sang on a couple of songs that they had and they loved it and blah, 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 blah. And I remember like they had Wacken booked and they had some really cool shows booked. I think they were called like Ang- Angra, Angra Yeah, there was a band called Angra, yeah, A-N-G-R-A, Angra. Something like that. Yeah. And they were really good, like fantastic. And I often thought, man, what if I would have jumped into that? Because like, like I said, they were playing like, well, you know, that Wacken, which is Don- Castle Donington Festivals, they were playing big things like that. Like, that's all they were doing. Early on sets, but, like, you know, they were still playing at these big, cool festivals. And I often thought, well, wouldn't that have been cool? But, you know, I, I didn't want to move to Europe and stuff like that and do that. I mean, these guys were from, like, Sweden or Denmark or something like that or somewhere like that. But that was one band that comes to mind. But there were so many different things that would come up, you know what I mean? And it's... uh it's a weird business because you never know if you're making the right choice or not. You know, yeah. do you move to LA? Do you not move to LA? You know, do, do you move to New York City? Do, do, what do you do? You know. Well, you know, being in a band could be a blessing and a curse, like we were talking about earlier on. I mean, you know, you could get in there with three or four or five guys and you know, have the time of your life and get along for the, the length of the band, and then you know, you get into a band and there's nothing but headaches from day one, and you kind of fight through them all just to keep it going because you've had some success or you've gained some momentum and you don't want to keep it going, even though maybe, you know, mentally you're like, I'm, I'm exhausted from dealing with these three or four guys or even one guy. So, I mean, in the end, is it better being a solo artist? Because you work with, like I said, you work with Vinnie and Carmine for, for a long time and that works out. But is it better doing your solo stuff where you're in complete control of everything and you dictate where everything goes? Sure. I mean, for sure. But I've never been that guy where, like, I don't get along with my bandmates. I try and get along with everybody. I, I really, I try and respect everybody. I, you know, we're all doing our thing, and, and and our thing makes music together. And I've always felt like that. So I've always wanted to play with guys or girls that um, we get we get on with really well. And and I think I think that's why I've always like international lasted twenty two years because it's you know we try and make it fun. You know, I don't try and make it. Like it's, ah, oh shit, I got to go do this tonight. I try and make it like, oh, I look forward to doing this tonight, you know, that way. But when you're doing your solo stuff, yeah, there's a lot more control on your end, but there's also a lot of more pressure on your end because my last three solo albums, I, you know, I got some pretty big name guys on it. So, you know, I had guys like Mike Tramp, who's a dear friend of mine. He was on it, like Frank Mino from Angel, guys like that, Tony Franklin, just some big name players would jump on, Rudy Sarjo, guys like that. And... But the pressure is, you know, that you want to make it the best it can be, you know, because if you got all these great players on there, you got to, I got to step up to that, to that, you know, expectation. So that's the only pressure that I felt with doing my own solo stuff. But as far as the headaches of it, it's fun because, like you said, you're in total control. So yeah, that's fun. Sure. Was there ever one person you've played with or worked with, whether it was on a song or maybe live? Where you actually felt intimidated, where you were like like maybe you were such just a big fan of that artist, or you know you loved everything that person done. Now you like wow, now I got the opportunity to work with him. Like, do you ever get like a little nervous about that, or is it just like hey, I'm a professional and it doesn't matter who I'm playing with, even if I'm the biggest fan of that person in the world and I'm at all, I'm just gonna go out there and do it. No, I mean because you know 
I yeah, that I, I've never been like googly eye over stuff like that because they're doing the same thing I'm doing. So I just always would be like, well, you know, it's cool. Like when I got the opportunity to work with Frank Domino, I was a big fan of him in the '70s. You know, when before I even got into music, you know, as a kid, I would you know. Angel, yeah. Listen to Angel albums in the 70s, you know, before music was even in my wheelhouse of being in a band or anything like that. Um, and, and and then before you know it, I'm on stage with the guy singing songs with them, and next thing you know, the guy's on my record. But he was one of the, he's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet in your life. Um, so, no, I've never had that issue, but um, it's kind of cool. We did we did um, the Hall of Heavy Metal History a couple of years ago with the Peace Brothers, and, uh, you know, out in the crowd was pretty much a who's who of, you name it, they were there. We had Bill Ward in the audience. We had Lee Kerslink, um, I mean, Lita Four. I mean, you name everybody from the 80s that was somebody or is somebody. And um, they were out in the crowd. Zach Wild. I mean, all these people. And, um, you know, we had to go do a set in front of them. So I thought, ah, that's cool, you know. And uh, we just went out there and did our thing. And, and then afterwards, they're all coming up to us. Hey, you guys did a great job, that type of thing. So, yeah, no, I never got, I never got like intimidated. I never thought like that because you know, here's the thing: at an early age, my one of my heroes, Phil Naro, um, was working with me. So I'm like, okay, I'm already working with the, a guy I looked up to who is already like my best friend. We're working together, so what? Everybody else, whatever, you know what I mean? So no, I never. I never was intimidated, but I'm, I'm I'm very appreciative of all these guys who I've worked with for sure, such as your you know guys pretty much everybody on my records, um, who contributed on my records. I'm I'm very appreciative, and I really look at it like uh, I, I'm, it's a big honor to have gotten to play share either share the stage with these guys or um, you know record with them for sure. Is there anybody left on the list that you didn't scratch off yet that you want to get to do something with? That's a great question, uh, Robin Zander. From Cheap wow, Trick, and I trick, came, yeah. but I came close to working with him, and I still, still, you know, just keep your fingers crossed for me, Mike. And um, of course, Tyler. I never got to work with Ronnie Dio, which would have been a great thing. And it's funny because I've worked with everybody in his camp. I worked with, um, uh, of course, Vinny. I've worked uh, there's Vivian. There's um, I've worked with uh, Jimmy Bain. We actually on my Insatiable album, Jimmy Bain actually did his last recording he ever did before he passed away on my album we did a Dio song called Caught in the Middle I've worked with Angelo Curry which is uh, was Dio's producer I've worked with pretty much everybody in Dio's camp, Rowan Robertson uh, except for Ronnie <laughs> yeah. so I never got to work with Ronnie, that would have been pretty that would have been a pretty magical and I use that word magical moment um, but now I think Steven Tyler would be really cool, I think that would be I mean him would really I think bang it out pretty good and of course, Robin Zander and I look up to both of those guys. Like uh, they're um, they're on my top top of the list. But again, I'm I'm just thrilled that I got to work with Phil Naro all those years because he was my guy, you know. And it's so cool that there's so much out there with me and him. And um, and like I said, the Lips Turn Blue just got released a couple weeks ago, and and I'm on background vocals on it. So I, I'm. If if I don't get to work with ever anybody ever again, pop big like that, at least I got that. I got to work with Phil, and, and I'm really happy about that. That is a great thing. I'm happy we're going to get new Talos music with him on it, and I'm more happy that you know Scream Taker, the new record's coming out. Jim, I believe it's September 23rd on Deco. It's coming out. It is. Yeah, we're real Super excited. They got, they, yeah, cool, huh? It's cool a great title. title. I, I love it. I came up with that. Yeah, it was like the song. The song was just. 
it, it's it's a fun song because it's like I was watching, you know, ever watch Ancient Aliens, that show Ancient yeah. Aliens? I was watching that, and then I thought, yeah, geez, you know, we're we're considered, you know, we're attracted. Like you look at an alien, you go, oh my god, they're so horrifying looking, and humans look beautiful, right? So that's what this song's about, like kill the beautiful, can't kill the beautiful, you know what I mean? So it's uh, got a really cool kind of Ronnie James Dio thing going, you know. But I, I thought, what a cool title. And then, and then everybody got nervous, said, well, you shouldn't really say kill in the title. And well, you, nowadays, you got to be careful on what you say and how you say it. You can't use the word kill. And but it's not about killing, like kill, like physically kill someone. I mean, kill beauty. Like if you have beauty inside or out, you can't take it away. You know what I mean? That's where really what it means. It doesn't mean like you're going to physically kill the beautiful. No, I get that. Somebody. We live in a we live in a world that's a little too sensitive today. This is rock and roll. <laughs> you know, it's, right. supposed, it's supposed to be this way. Well, that's what I was worried about. People are like nowadays everybody's sensitive is like kill. This guy wants to kill somebody. What kill? Kill him? <laughs> no, it's nothing like that. It means you can't take away. And here I am having to describe myself now, and that's the worst thing you have to do when you write a song. I always like to leave it open for interpretation. I hate how you should never have to describe what you wrote a song about. It should mean everything different to somebody else. And but nowadays you have to say, well, hang on, you got to defend yourself, you know. But uh, but I thought it was a cool title. So and, and, and so when I proposed it to the record label, they thought that's cool. That's that's cool. that's fine. Let's call it that. So that's that's what we all decided on, and that's kind of where we're going to cover. Have you seen the album cover yet? I've seen the cover. It's great. Jeff DeBerry did that, and um, you know he did it. I, I gave him the ideas, so I gave him a lot of cool ideas. I wanted something like that, and then he came up with that. It came out really cool, and then. Lee Stokes uh, came up with all the graphic design on the booklet. Wait till you see that; it's going to look fantastic. And the art, and, and Charlie at Deco is, uh, or Deco, is um, really getting behind the record. I, I, I'm really excited about this record. It's going to be a great release. Do you know if they're going to put a vinyl version of it out? You know, I want them to, and that's that's the first thing. When Jeff Keller, our manager, got us the deal, that was my, my big stipulation. I said, I really want to get this on vinyl because I think this album needs it on vinyl and there's enough vinyl collectors out there even if we do a limited press of like 5,000 you know yeah. and and I said there's a there's a market for that there's a demand for that and then I guess the, I guess vinyl is so backed up right now it's like six seven months backed out is from what I'm told from the label so they said well let's put this thing out there now they do they got a cool bundle thing going right now where it's like a t-shirt you get a t-shirt you get the cd and then you get like a cool book that has all the lyrics in it and pictures and all the stuff autographed by the, by the band, so that's what they're putting out as a bundle pack, and which looks fantastic. And then they said, well, then you know, once we get this out there, we can maybe revisit and do a vinyl. So I'm hoping on a vinyl. I think it'd look really cool with the red vinyl, with that logo. Since you've seen the cover, you know what I'm talking about. With yeah, the screaming yeah. girls on the front. I think that would look really cool. It'll look fantastic. But yeah, a lot of a lot of labels are having manufacturing problems right now. You know, over the last year. Getting the, but in a way, maybe that's a good thing because you know you get this out there like this, and then maybe six, seven months down the road they do the vinyl, and it brings life back to the record again. You know, when people have you know moved on, they'll say, "Hey, this is back," and, and it gives it give a give a second life. You know. Yeah. No. It's it, 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 this album needs. I want to hear how it's going to sound on vinyl because it's got that old school sound to it. So I, I think it would just sound. Because let's face it, when you put vinyl on, it sounds so much better than a digital CD. I think. Yeah. And um, it would just sound really cool on vinyl. I, I hope it does. I hope it really comes out on vinyl because I think that there's a market for it. I'll just start emailing the label saying, I want to buy this, but I need the vinyl. I keep doing it every day with different email addresses so they get the hint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we'll get say, it out hey, there. Say, I'm, 
Yeah, Mike, do that. Stay on them because I want it out on vinyl. I mean, you, 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 and everybody else wants it out on vinyl. So yep. I think, I think we should really do a petition and get it out on vinyl. <laughs> I'm sure it will be. Hey, Jim, I'm not going to keep you, man. I appreciate you talking with me today. This is going to be on this weekend show. You've been one of my favorite singers for a very long time, and I'm so happy about this new record from Scream Taker. And I, I know, being in New York, you will do some shows here when you get out there playing live, and I'm going to be at one of the first ones. Mike, thanks, man. I was on your show once before, and we had a great conversation. I remember it was about five years ago. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and we did a, you did a great job. So keep keep working. I'm glad to see you're still kicking ass and keep doing it. And um, I got another thing I wanted to say. I got a um, I'm on a Def Leppard tribute album that drops. I think it drops next Tuesday. Um, it's an F and A Records. It's, it's a tribute to Def Leppard. I did two songs on there, so keep a lookout for that too. All right. Well, what did you what did you sing? Uh, we did um, Foolin' uh, with uh, Jesse Galante. She's from Buffalo. She was in a band called Actor, and then she was also in a band called, um, and she went in L.A. She was in a big band, too. And uh, and then I did uh, Mirror, Mirror, which came out really cool. Oh, nice. I, I want to hear that. Yeah, so it's on F&A Records. I don't, I, I, maybe it's next Friday. I don't know when it actually drops, but it's keep an eye out for that, too. Uh, that should be pretty cool. I will. I'll get all the links and I'll put them up with the interview when we do it. Jim, you have a great weekend, my friend. We've got to do this again soon. Mike, great talking. Thanks for reaching out. You too, buddy. Take care. Have a good one. See you, pal. Bye. Bye bye.
Okay, brand new Scream Taker, Burning Flame. Well, for Kill the Beautiful, pick up that record. I want to thank Jim and Guy for being on tonight's show. I want to wish everybody a happy Labor Day weekend. I hope you're off tomorrow. I know I am. And I'm going to be heading out to Atlantic City with the family for the day. Hopefully the weather will be nice. Right now, it's thunder, lightning, and a lot of rain here in New York. So hopefully New Jersey will be a little better. We'll see. All right, everybody, thanks for tuning in tonight. I will see you guys next Sunday night. Jeff Dunn, Mantis of Venom, and Venom Inc. will be on the show, as well as Frank Peppy. I'm sorry, Matt Peppy from Royal Hell. Uh, Frank Peppy's. I was in Connecticut a few weeks ago. I'm thinking of Frank Peppy's Pizza. But Matt Peppy from Royal Hell will also be on the show live next week. And we're going to follow it up with our 14-year anniversary show with John Gallagher of Raven. And all the boys from Oblivion are going to be calling in that day. So stick around. It's going to be a great month. Take care, everybody. Have a good week. How about we wrap it up with a little Iron Angel, Russia Power. See you guys next Sunday.
lift tickets. They had a good run. But now there's Epic Day Pass. Choose to ski or ride one to seven days and select your resort access to Vail, Park City, and more. All while paying less compared to lift tickets. Sorry, lift tickets. It's time for Epic Day Pass. PC Richard & Son's four-step mattress fitting process helps you find the perfect bed. During our Labor Day sale, buy any Sealy mattress $5.99 and up and get a free TV up to 55 inches with your purchase. PC Richard & Son. Shop safe. Shop local. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.